Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that encouraging community is essential for our health and well-being. I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. And when we hang out together in small enough groups where we know everybody by name or at least by face. We collaborate, cooperate, and do all kinds of wonderful things together, whether it's sewing circles or watching games together or playing games or bicycle riding or eating. We love to eat together, sitting around in groups, very tribal. We love doing things like that. And more recently, we like doing psychedelic medicines together. Ayahuasca circles, no question. However, at the very same time that we recognize how friendly and tribal our species is, we must also recognize that there's a very small percentage of us who are markedly different. These are the people who, when we were in the caves, played king of the hill. These are the people who eventually were the head of the tribe and were head of countries as kings and dictators. These are the kind of people who would rather have us be subjects than citizens. We see examples of this throughout of all of history, whether it's the pharaohs who with the 1% at the top had most of the other 99% in slavery, moving forward in history, whether it was Caesar who changed the Roman Republic into an empire and he was the dictator, whether it was Napoleon, more recently Putin, or my Donald Trump, if he got in again, would act like a dictator. These are different people. And it is essential that we maintain our awareness and our right to vote. Even though these are hard times for so many people, I recognize fully that 70% of the United States right now are living paycheck to paycheck, concerned about rent and food. But even those of the 70% must stay aware and vote. We cannot let our country lose our democracy and our republic. A democracy means one person, one vote. A republic means no one is above the law. Everyone's treated equally before the law. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm happy to have with us Leslie Grace. Leslie Grace has worn a lot of hats. She's been a nurse. She's been a hospice worker. She has worked with psychedelic healing, with somatic therapy. She's worked with Tantra. She's worked at the intersection between somatic therapy and conscious sexuality She's also worked with something called Hakomi, which I'm not familiar with, and maybe she'll tell us about today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Leslie. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a real delight to be here and so curious which way our conversation will end up going. Well, you have done so many things, I hardly know where to begin, but I think I'm going to begin going back in your history to when you were a nurse and a hospice worker. 
please share some of your experiences with people going through end-of-life transitioning. Tell us about their emotional state. Tell us about what you learned about them. Yeah, this was a really important time in my life. I think that um, that working with death or being close to death and, and really kind of having an appreciation for that process and, and all the different facets of it, I think it really deepens us and changes us as human beings. And it was a really uh, meaningful time in my life. I I knew, I know, becoming a nurse, I wanted to, I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people, uh, in, you know, heal and, and feel feel whole, feel well. I ended up in in intensive care because it was the kind of most, uh, you know, critical care. Like, okay, wow, it was the the kind of tip of the spear in terms of the the level of nursing. And I became fascinated by by uh, you know kind of what we could do with modern medicine. And at the same time, it was really heartbreaking to see people. Um, in such in such challenging states, uh, who were being kept alive on machinery, um, many of whom really like didn't actually have much of a prognosis to survive. And you know, us as the nurses, we talked to the doctors about like, well, you know, what's this person's chance? And you know, oftentimes they'd be keeping people going, you know, because they actually weren't really sure how to have the conversation with the family that that actually, you know, this this person doesn't really have a whole lot of chance to have a, a good quality of life after this or the possibility to bounce back is really not there. Um, so it was really, you know, it was I felt like it was good work and I was really serving people, but I also my heart was a little broken over, you know, how long we would keep people in there only to, you know, have them sort of eventually pass away. We did see people, you know, make it make it on and and you know go on to be healthy and well. Um, so after working in that area for a little while, I decided to move into hospice work. Uh-huh. Okay. Tell us about the hospice work. Yeah. And so going into hospice was a totally different world. It was like, okay, we can just really um, kind of let nature take its course. We can we can trust the intelligence of the body. We can trust this person's passage through their life. Um, we can trust that what's unfolding is is really in its right timing. And, and it felt like a much more sacred approach to life, um, less about like, oh, we have to fight against reality or we have to, you know, push or, you know, fix it or make it different. You know, it was actually just about like allowing and, and letting the, the natural process unfold as it would. And so in that space, it was, you know, my role was kind of as the midwife, you know, as the, the death doula, as the, you know, sort of one who got to walk beside and, and sort of support both the patient and the family to really understand the process and, and make sense of it and know, you know, how to best move forward, you know, without fear and really knowing that, hey, we were going to account for the the patient's medical needs, the course wanting to assure that they'd be free of pain and, you know, minimize their suffering as much as possible. Um, so there was a lot of conditions where, where I saw people really having quite beautiful deaths, really, uh, embracing the process and really going into it with open arms and without fear. And I think if anything, like the most important thing that I was able to offer to people was that just like sense of peace and, and well-being um, that they could kind of, you know, the family could sort of mirror that and go, oh, okay, Leslie's not, not stressed out about this. You know, she's not thinking that there's some big problem. Actually, like maybe this death thing is, is sort of okay. And it's actually, you know, it can be time to let go. So, I've had uh, death doulas on the program and also people from uh, the head of uh, the Hospice Foundation, and 
they report, first of all, one of the things they taught me is that when you go into hospice, it means that you're no longer going to be uh, kept alive with extraordinary means. It means you've gotten a prognosis that you're going to be on your way out. You're transitioning. And mm-hmm. so that applies mm-hmm. to the people that you worked with as well. So course, all the yeah. people in this case that you worked with were transitioning. Now, right. the other folks uh, that worked hospice and, and run hospice reported that a extremely high, like over 90% of the people that they've worked with in hospice suffer from end-of-life anxiety, fear, and depression. Is Was that your experience also, Leslie? Well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different kinds of folks who are in hospice. So, so I'd say there's a you know there's a the vast majority of patients that I had in hospice were were beyond the point of being able to speak or you know verbalize about their experience. Oh. Um, many of them had dementia. Many of them were already in very deteriorated states, so they weren't necessarily um, able to communicate about sort of how they felt about death or that kind of thing. They were sort of like you know, in a deteriorated cognitive space. So, I see. Um, it was a smaller percentage of folks who, you know, maybe were younger, maybe were, you know, dying of something like cancer or something where they were more mentally intact. Um, and of those people, I would say definitely there was, you know, a lot of folks do have anxiety around death, just the way our culture approaches it is, you know, makes it seem like it's this awful thing. Um, but I also saw people who were really like, hey, they, you know, they had had a good life and they were actually just accepting and, sort of like ready to go when it was their time. And, and, and those folks, it was really such a blessing to be with them. And, um, and I got to witness, you know, some of them in their transition just with so much grace, with so much ease. And so I think that, I think that it really can be that way. Now, some of the people I've interviewed have administered psychedelics to people at end of life. That obviously wouldn't be appropriate to this population that you're working with who had such severe de- dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, et cetera, because they were no longer compass mentis. That would not be appropriate right. to give them psychedelics. But the younger people, perhaps so. Now, yeah. you mentioned to me. I did have um, I did have one patient who who you know he was on hospice, but he was he was a uh, very slowly deteriorating. So actually, he you know you you can be on hospice for a long period of time. It's just more about the you know the terminal process. But he was probably my patient for over a year or so, and we got to talk all about his past psychedelic experiences. He had a lot of experience. Um, you know, several decades before he had been down to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. And, and he was really like asking me like, oh, well, you know, any chance I could, you know, get a shaman in here to do that with me again. And at the time I was, you know, I was kind of, a, you know, still a young nurse kind of like, oh, I kind of had to protect my, my license. And it, it wasn't the right thing to have someone come in and do a experience with him. But, um, you know, if that happened today, I might've, I might've uh, approached it differently, but. Now you mentioned, uh, before the interview, when we were chatting that you've, uh, help some people as they were transitioning, as we call it, and they had a end-of-life experience, I think in your words, which was orgasmic. Did did I hear that correctly? So... So I, it's my belief that when, when death is approached uh, with open arms and, you know, in a conscious way, I, I believe that death, the, the experience of death can be tremendously orgasmic and pleasurable. That's my personal uh, belief. Uh, I have 
as I mentioned, I've experienced when people have really approached it with open arms and they've really kind of said everything they need to say. They've really made peace with their family and the different people in their life. Um, I've seen people who have gone through a very graceful, easeful transition where it's almost like mm, this one woman, I, I uh, was at her bedside for about four hours or so as she was actively dying. And she was, her bedside was, um, uh, surrounded by a group of her friends and then we were all holding her hand and, you know, telling her that she, you know, we love her and it's totally safe for her to go. And um, she was no longer communicative or speaking, um, but we knew what her wishes were. And, you know, she was, she was kind of living out her death the way that she would have wanted. And, and during that four hour process, uh, her friends and I sat there just holding a space of real peace and real acceptance. There was there was no no uproar. There was no problem in the in the picture, and you know I was administering her morphine and you know throughout the time to make sure she was free of pain. Um, and as we sat and watched, her breath moved from more of a more of an abdominal belly breath, you know, fuller breaths to slowly kind of moved up more into her chest, and it was just kind of more rising in the chest, and then it kind of moved up a little more until. It was more of this kind of shallow, just kind of like a little breath in the throat, little little mouth open with the with the breath, and then it moved even further up to so where it was almost like she was barely taking in any breath whatsoever. It was just this like little little kind of arch going on in her in her neck, just a little like ah, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was this beautiful, really elegant transition tra- flow from the from the belly, and we could almost like sense the life force moving further up and up and up until it was just like. Poof, and then she just, you know, stopped, stopped breathing, and there was just peace. And and we all sat in that moment, like, wow, like we could feel the angels in the room, and you know, just that sense of like, wow, we have witnessed something truly spectacular here. Having having experienced morphine, uh, that in and of itself is is a pleasant. I'm not recommending it, but it, it's certainly a very pleasant experience, and I'm sure that helped quite a bit. Do you happen to recall? What the dosage was for a person in that no, transition? No, I don't no, recall Too the long dosage. ago. No. I thought maybe you wouldn't. I mean, you know, the uh, the the recommendation is always just like if somebody seems to be struggling in any way, if they seem to be in distress of any kind, then go ahead and give a little more dose. You know, it's it's really not. There's no problem with overdosing or things like that. You know, that we're not concerned about that at that point. It's more like. Hmm, what could allow this person to relax into the experience, whatever it needs to be? So. Mm-hmm. I've had two extremely close uh, calls with death, and um, one of them was very rapid, so I don't have much sense of the emotional state because it came and went very quickly. I mean, I flew through the air, and then I stopped, and then that was the end of it. But that while I was flying through the air, headed towards over a cliff with a 3,000-foot drop, I was aware that that was possible, but I ended up landing right on the edge without going over the side. But another time thankfully, I, uh, thankfully. <laughs> huh? thankfully, thankfully, another time Still it was a, lo- it was a much longer experience. And it was, it was, even though I was in a lot of physical pain from the size of the accident, it was actually a very pleasant experience. Um, somehow after your hospice work, you then transitioned. What did you go directly into 
what's referred to as guiding, or was there an of your many hats that you've worn? Was there an in between hat before you went from hospice to guiding? There, there was a there was a huge in between chapter in there. So I'll tell you the story. Okay. Um. So I was living in San Diego doing my nursing work, and I was actually having what I would call like a quarter life crisis. I was in my my late twenties at the time, and I was kind of like you know okay, I was doing my my work in the world. I was like know, paid off my student debt. I was, you know, buying furniture for my apartment. And uh-huh. and I was kind of just like, am I missing something? Like, what more is there to life? There's something seriously wrong with this picture. I just like, I wasn't happy. I wasn't, I didn't have community. I didn't really have a, a spiritual connection that felt really meaningful to me. <clears throat> and I was on antidepressants. I was seeing a therapist. I was, you know, kind of crying out for change in my life. And um, I had been raised Catholic, so I had that upbringing, but I had left the church back in my teen years and um, was sort of agnostic. I sort of believed something must be out there, but I really didn't know what. And uh, I, you know, by the grace of God, found myself uh, in Costa Rica in in uh, January 2009. I had been on a family vacation and um, decided to, I was going to stay in Costa Rica and travel by myself, backpack around. And I ended up hooking up with this, uh, this, uh, raw medicinal plants of the jungle retreat. And I'm telling you, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but, uh, I showed up, we did some, some bushwhacking through the jungle. We did, uh, our first, my first cacao ceremony ever. So with, uh, with, uh, you know, chocolate beans ground up into a, into a hot chocolate, and it was very, you know, heart opening, uh, really cathartic emotionally. I, I sobbed those kind of deepest tears I've ever sobbed. And I was like, wow, where's all this emotion coming from? And the group that I was with was was so unlike any other people I'd ever met. They were like welcoming my my feelings and telling me, yeah, just keep letting it out, sister. You're doing great. And I just never been exposed to a community like that before. And we did um, three nights of all night trance dancing around a bonfire where we were, we were dancing our prayers, dancing our emotions, just letting it all out, shaking all the energy out and um, in this very kind of ceremonial format. And again, I had never heard of ecstatic dance or five rhythms or any of those kind of like conscious dance modalities. It never occurred to me before. And uh, so that was a huge revelation, just connecting to my body and my emotions that way. And then they happened to say, oh, and then in a few days, this shaman's coming from Peru to do some ayahuasca ceremonies. Do you want to do it? And I was like, what's ayahuasca? <laughs> and they're like, okay. So uh, so they were like, well, have you ever taken mushrooms or anything like that? And I said, well, yeah, I did some in college. But uh, um, they're like, okay, well, you'll be fine. You know, yeah, why, why not? You know, so I participated in my first three ayahuasca ceremonies that week. And it was a total life changing, you know, event horizon, never look back kind of thing. So um, in those experiences, I, I had uh, some kind of Kundalini awakening experience. It was a, it was like a sexual awakening, spiritual awakening. I felt um, a connection to my to my energy, to my life force, in a way that I had never felt before. Really, really viscerally in my body, really connected to my emotions and my whole life history. It was like I could feel all the architecture of it inside my body, and and this this Kundalini event was like. It was like a full body orgasm with God. I was like 
it was like energy moving through my core. It felt like fire just like pulsing through me and, and, and it came up to my third eye and sort of exploded out my third eye. And I was like, whoa, I was in this like total bliss, total pleasure, joy, fulfillment. Like, wow, this is, this is the creative impulse of life. And I was like, it was such a reverent experience. It was full of, of devotion and mystery. And I was like, wow, there's way more to sexuality than I have ever fathomed. And, you know, like I said, coming from the Catholic upbringing that was pretty repressive around that, I just realized, wow, we've got it all wrong. There's way more to this. And, and I became fascinated to learn more about the mind-body connection, about how sexuality played a role in our awakening process. And, and so I, uh, I stayed living with that community for three months in the jungle in Costa Rica. Oh, and changed, wow. Changed my life. <laughs> changed three my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I um and then I ended up moving up to Northern California and and eventually settled here in the in the San Francisco Bay Area and took every training I could get my hands on around coaching and in conscious sexuality. I became a tantra educator and I quit nursing altogether and I started to become a sex and intimacy coach and I taught tantra classes for years and What is a tantric educator? Tell us. Yeah, so um so I was I was doing trainings that were really focused on like how do we help people create a shift in their own being from you know believing that you know sex is this thing that's kind of like shadowy or disconnected or you know we have to feel ashamed of it or that kind of thing and actually reframing that into like wow how can sexuality be something that's really beautiful and and powerful and that that allows us to you know to really express our love and our power in the world and um, really, really amplify our dreams. And so I feel like the biggest shift into the tantric perspective is one where, where sexual energy is actually, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, respected and revered for, for the, the potent transformational force that it is. And, and aligning with that gives us a chance to, to really accept who we are and to be fully empowered by that energy and let us kind of move forward in the world with that life force flowing and, and our own connection to self and other flowing and open. So it's been a total revolution in my life. Does, does a tantric educator literally teach people how to make love and to have sex does it offer skill training? Because one of the of things course, I talk ab yeah. about in, in my upcoming book, Freeing Sexuality, is that in our culture, there's no the, the place where young people, as we're growing up, learn about sex is either in the schoolyard or from Hollywood or pornography. Porn, or, yeah, or, but, yeah. But there's no real education, and it's sort of looked at like, well, you know how to drink water, you know how to eat food. You should know how to make love. But that's not really the case, is it? Making love is really a skill. It takes a lot. It takes training. And is that part of what, what uh, tantric educated do to teach people actual skills of making love? Absolutely. I think the number one thing about it is that, you know, the vast majority of people are really disconnected from their bodies. We're really disconnected from what we feel. And people live very like, you know, kind of just in their head or trying to like, trying to like do sex the way that they think they should or the way, you know, some expectations, some, you know, and so really what this approach teaches is like, first of all, how to get in tune with your own body and actually like 
huh, like feel yourself and actually sense like, wow, what do I feel? Or how, what do I want? What do I desire? And actually getting in touch with oneself and what your needs and desires are, then how to communicate that to a partner openly and actually have a conversation about it and see, you know, what, what do we want to explore? What feels good for you? How about we try this? Oh no. Okay. A little bit more like that. Okay. That's perfect. You know, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of games that, that I would teach couples in terms of like how to start to reorient to that and, and actually discover what feels good. Not like think that they're supposed to be a certain kind of sexy, but more like, huh, what feels good in the moment and kind of let that unfold naturally. Give us a graphic uh, a verbalization of what a, a game that will enhance sexuality uh, sounds like, you know, as you teach it, sure. please. You want to give us sure. one example so, or two. Thank you. Sure. So, so you know, the very best example I can give you is, is a really powerful and very, very simple game called the five-minute game. Um, you know, it can also be played as the 10 minute game or the 15 minute game, but, but basically, you know, one partner goes first and you literally set a timer for five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it is. And for that amount of time, the one partner asks for whatever kind of touch they want, uh, on any, any part of their body, any way that they'd like to be touched that can be, you know, nurturing, loving touch that can be a little bit more juicy or playful or erotic, but let's imagine, uh, you know, the first partner says, Oh, you know, would you run your fingers through my hair kind of slowly like this? And you know, the, then the other partner is, is kind of following along low like this, you know. Oh, yeah. And could you even do that like a little harder, like kind of almost scratch the scalp a little bit? Yeah, just like that. And they're giving moment by moment feedback about what feels good what they want a little bit more of or a little bit less of or, or oh, okay, actually not that. Maybe maybe you would just um, put some little kisses on my cheek. Yeah, that would feel nice. Some little kisses there. And, oh, okay, that's nice. All right, would you go down my neck now and maybe down here in between my breasts? Or, yeah, so it's a moment-by-moment exploration of what would feel good. And, and the second partner is just following along, just doing their best to offer the kind of touch that's being asked for. And, and, you know, the truth is that a lot of people don't know what they want. They have a lot of trouble saying what they are asking for something like that in itself is a real skill that needs to be built. Um, But when the person does ask for something that they want, then the other partner is like, oh, now I know what would bring you pleasure. And they can just offer that thing and they don't have to try to guess or figure it out. You know, they're just following the, the instructions, right? Um, so, and then after the five minutes, then you switch roles and then the other person gets to go. So it's a really beautiful opportunity for whoever's in the receiving role to just truly receive and not feel like they have to give back to, or they have to please their partner that, okay, we'll have time for that. But actually for this amount of time, it's total focus on you in your experience. And, and that is definitely a skill that, that a lot of people I think could benefit from learning. So what that skill is sounds like it's teaching is what one of my guests called teaching slow sex so that you slow down the process rather than the Hollywood version where you two people go in a room, suddenly rip off each other's clothes. The guy jumps on the girl, penetrates for 90 seconds and then rolls over and smokes a cigarette. Right, right. Right. And it really widens the field of what we think about as sex or as intimacy. So, um, so something like, oh, you know, I may not have realized how much, oh, just like, like slow, like saw, you know, like, like, like touch the just kind of strokes down my arm. Like, I didn't realize how, oh, that's so soothing or, oh, that's so wonderful. We might not have thought of that as like, 
part of sex, but, but in this kind of space, then you sort of like, you expand the definition and suddenly sex isn't just about like penetration and getting to climax and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not so goal oriented. It's a lot more like just in the moment, just what wants to happen now, what would feel really good. And there's so much infinite terrain to explore and so much creativity that's possible with that attitude of discovery. Well, it sounds like what, what what you're describing here is what I call eroticizing the environment. You're talking about eroticizing the entire body so that it's sex touching the hair or the fingers uh, is, I mean, that's part of sex that, uh, sure. that touches. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. And then mm-hmm. then I assume that the, the, the skill training goes on and on and on to more overt uh, what we call, you know, actual, uh, uh, not sure, actual, but sure. m- more, yeah. uh, more specific sexual behavior. Right. Right. So, you know, for example, you know, many women that I worked with over the course of time, um, were only able to have orgasms, uh, that really originated from their clitoris very, um, you know, required like, you know, high level of stimulation, you know, or sometimes you know, using vibrators, things like that. And they didn't have access to other forms of orgasm. And so maybe they never even heard about their G spot or, you know, vaginal orgasms, what those were like and starting to introduce them to some of those ideas and starting to offer them as a couple, some practices to work with that, to get in tune with those areas inside the vagina where there's there's like these deeper sexual centers um, started to open up like, oh, wow, there's so many more dimensions of pleasure, so many different kinds of orgasms that one can have. And really there's like whole like layers of emotional depth that can start to unfold once those like deeper a- uh, avenues are, are being like opened and touched. So, um, so for women accessing their G spot and learning about that part of their body and the way that, that pleasure and energy opens from there, that's like revolutionary for a lot of women. Um, for guys, on the other hand, um, a lot of the guys that I worked with wanted to learn how to last longer, wanted to learn how to control their ejaculation, wanted to, um, you know, be a better lover in those ways and have more control. And so for them, it was actually teaching them more of the energetic awareness around, you know, how does your sexual energy work and how can you start to gain more access to it? Uh, gain more control over it and also, uh, receive more pleasure from it. So, helping guys to learn to use their breath and use their awareness to move sexual energy from their pelvis throughout their whole body. So rather than, you know, energy building up, building up all the arousal building up in the, in the genitals, and then, you know, leading to the ejaculation too soon, rather than that, okay, we'll build up the energy or building up arousal, but then we're going to breathe and spread it and move it throughout the whole body. And it become and, and then the need to ejaculate kind of gets a little less. So, so learning these skills and practicing them over time, guys can learn to have full body orgasms. Guys can learn to, you know, delay ejaculation as long as they want to. Um, and, but really it's about like, wow, being nourished by this energy in a full body kind of way. It's a really, it's a really unique experience. And, um, it was a real honor to get to share these practices with, with couples, both in, um, in workshop kind of settings and, and also private sessions, you know, so I used to do hands-on sexual healing work like this, you know, really teaching people these practices and, and then kind of like letting them go home with these tools and like, oh, wow, that's just like really changed things for them. So, um, it was quite a, quite an amazing time. What does hands-on the teaching of sexuality mean, literally? 
Yeah. So, so, you know, so I used to offer tantric massage, which, you know, I would be actually like, say, say I was working with a couple, for example. So, um, so say, say the, the woman was going to go first receiving the massage. So, uh, me and her partner would give her a full body massage, um, you know, help her relax, tune into her body, tune into her breath, and then slowly move into more erotic massage. And so for a woman that often looks like, her really like taking time to let the, let the different layers of her body start to relax. So maybe we're working more into her thighs and her hips and, you know, kind of slowly moving toward the genital area and getting there. It's like, okay, really like approaching with a lot of care and reverence and a lot of gentleness, just like gentle caress on the vulva, gentle stimulation of the clitoris. And, you know, when she feels ready, when she feels open, maybe there's time to then, you know, go inside with the fingers and start to locate the G spots or to locate those different areas where, where she can feel like, oh, there's maybe there's energy that's stuck there or there's there's emotion that wants to bubble up when we contact that particular area. So um, it can be a, a real opportunity for sexual healing work to to happen to release, you know, trauma that's held in the body. If she's had negative sexual experiences or shame around her body, there can be all sorts of ways that women hold tight and that prevents them from really having the fullness of their orgasmic experience. So getting to sort of contact, like how are they holding that energy and give, and give their body a chance to sort of like, start to unwind and unravel and then so much more becomes available to them. So sounds like this kind of work requires a tremendous amount of responsibility on the part of the uh, trainer, not to get 100%. personally involved with the, with the people they're working with. In my right. profession, for example, we're licensed by the board at the, of the state. I think at this time, I, I don't know if we're even allowed to hug a patient uh, because there is so much concern about the possibility of of uh, boundary uh, boundaries getting loosened up and therapists having you know engaging in some kind of sexual activity with their patients. Tremendous amount of concern about that, and because uh, there have been examples it is, of it, it is and a big those problem. those examples mm-hmm. sort of it is it's a big problem, and you so. This sounds like uh, this was a, a big movement for, for you from hospice work oh, yeah. to this kind of work, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, also, I've always been very comfortable with bodies. I mean, you know, in, in my nursing care, As it was a, like, all right, tube, tubes right. in every orifice, wiping up people's shit. You know, there was kind of like, yeah. a, okay, bodies are bodies, you know. And there's something about, about this that was, you know, Tantra, like because there's such a focus on the heart, you know, conscious sexuality really comes from this, this, this heartfelt desire to bring these energies into, into alignment, into harmony, into a state of goodness, right? So of course, yeah, okay, there's turn on, there's excitement, but, but the goodness and the, and the kind of alignment with oneself is, is at the center of all of that. So, so in some ways it's also, it was also very innocent and very, you know, very sweet for people to get to connect with themselves in that way. And I, it was just such an honor for me to get to play that kind of role. So, so I, Ayelet Waldman, who I interviewed on this program, she wrote this book, A Really Good Day, about her experiencing with uh, experiences with microdosing LSD as a way to treat manic uh, bipolar disorder. I almost called it by its old name, manic depressive, but it's now bipolar. She, she says sometimes there's a real place for what she calls the advocating for the quickie. Now, how does that fit in? Do you is it is it is there a place for for uh, 
advocating for the quickie, does that have value? Sure. Um, I guess what I would say is that, you know, in what I used to really focus on and teach around that, it's it's about the the quality of connection. You know, it's not really about like what are the physical acts that are done? You know, do we, do we both get off? Do, you know, like I, for example, there's a client um, that I am working with now who, um, you know, he complains about like, well, you know, we get up in the morning and we have, you know, like 15 minutes to try to, you know, make love. And, you know, usually like she tries to get me off and I try to get her off and, you know, we kind of got to like jump into our day and, blah, blah. and, and I asked him like, well, how is it feeling for you? Does it, does it feel satisfying? Does it feel enjoyable? And he's like, well, you know, kind of like sometimes we get there, sometimes we don't blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, but it kind of seems to me like actually the quality of the experience isn't really that, high for him. And so uh, instead I was, I was guiding him into, well, what if you were actually just to enjoy each other's company in that time, enjoy touch, enjoy being close to one another, enjoy the sensuality of whatever did want to happen. Maybe it's like, Ooh, nuzzling into her cheek, you know, nuzzling into her ears and, you know, sm- maybe you just want to smell her body. Maybe you want to just stroke her thighs. And it's not about like, okay, can we like get hard and get it to happen and get it? You know, it's like, it doesn't need to be about all that. So, so for me, the, the quickie is kind of like, okay, even if you take uh, 15 minutes a day just to be in intimacy together, be in shared energy, be in that flow of pleasure together and sensuality, it doesn't really matter what the acts are that happen. Yeah. You know, we have a real problem, which is that with both people and couples working nowadays, which so many do, People get up in the morning, they commute to work, they work all day long, then they commute home, and then they have dinner, and then, you know, it's already can be seven, eight, or nine o'clock at night, and they and there's this, this tendency in the whole country, I think it, we're taught to make love at night, you know, when it's dark, but by the time they go through their entire day, they're exhausted, which is the worst time to do the most intimate of acts. It's a, and it's a real problem. It, it really is. It, and I think you've probably seen the data that people around the country are making love a lot less in recent years than in years before that. And, and since the pandemic, I think even, even more so less that's a funny word. More mm-hmm. so, less. And and there's also this uh, there's also this uh, myth that we have that that women aren't interested in sex or women after a certain age don't want sex anymore or something like that. Um, I believe that that a lot of women out there, especially those that I've worked with and spoke to, it's like of course they want intimacy, they want connection, uh, but maybe the the kind of sex that they were having didn't appeal to them or the, the way that their partner approached it just wasn't a turn on for them. And, and so actually in those situations, it's more about discovering, well, what would be really enjoyable to her? What would feel hot to her? How does she want to be desired? What, you know, what's her kind of sexual fantasy around like, like how she wants her lovemaking to go. And then, and then actually try out some of those ways to implement that and into actually their uh, bringing it into their sex life. So, so not just like, oh, she's got to go along with the, you know, whatever the kind 
status quo. This is how we have sex. And we know we do it like this. And she's in that position. Maybe she wants a totally different flavor of, of intimacy, right? Maybe she wants to feel really connected to through the heart first. Maybe she wants to just kiss and make out for 20 minutes before she's ready to be penetrated. You know, it's like, it's like actually following what is her desire. And like, let's start there. Just whatever is the first thing. She may not be ready to go to penetration. She may just want to, huh, let's just be in this. Actually, could you just caress my breast? Could you just hold me like this? Could you just, oh, that feels so good. And and for women, it's often like whatever is the first thing that feels good. If she receives that, then it's most likely that her body will want to open more and, and she'll come up with something else that would feel good. And so it's kind of just following that pleasure pathway. Um, so not needing to jump somewhere else or, you know, get to the finish line, like I said, but just like following that organic opening and, and having the, the confidence to be able to ask for those things and the patience to let that unfold and, and, and really how much intimacy can be built in that process, I think is really special. So you've rushed in where angels fear to tread. There's so much conflict in this area. Women have been put down for generations for having pleasure. And the, and the culture is sort of anti-pleasure. And then the religions, uh -huh. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all, against pre, oh, are all against premarital sex. So all the people who are having premarital sex are sinning in some way until they get over those feelings. Uh, you were raised Catholic. You know, there's a famous quote from the Pope who says, you give me a child as a Catholic from zero to six and you can have him for the rest of your li his life or her life and that person will always be mine, which is a way of saying the indoctrination yeah. in those six years is so deep that they will always... It's pretty deep. Know, right. And so, you know, how... I've been unraveling it actively. Ever since I started my my intentional medicine work, I've been unraveling my relationship to the church uh, over time. And literally every journey I do, there's the, the church makes an appearance, right? right? There's I'm, always I'm, more layers of shame, more layers of like, you know. And what I think it ultimately comes down to is that the, the church wanted to eliminate... Um, any other means of accessing the divine, any other means of getting to that expansive, pure love, energy, vitality, you know, they wanted to, to kind of keep, they wanted to be the gatekeepers for, for God. Right. And, and so I think it's, it's why sexuality has been so tamped down, why psychedelics have been repressed. I mean, these are pathways to ecstasy, pathways to to our interconnection with all of life and um, this this life force that just wants to bloom and blossom and, you know, follow its own course. Well, you know, the church doesn't want us to to let our own life force out. They, they want to be the controllers of all that. So it makes perfect sense. And uh, I'm honestly, my, in my life, I've been actively working to to dismantle those repressions and to allow myself to be more expressed. And I really do still feel that like the witch hunt is like back there in my subconscious <laughs> I bet. somewhere, I you bet. know, like, Ooh, that, you know, that witchy woman, like that is me. That was me. She, you know, it's like that, that fear of like, Oh, if I let this out, what's going to happen? Like that still lives in me. And now so. I have a, a theory I'm working on in my research on, on sexuality that, Sexual intercourse involving penetration is in and of itself a male domination activity because the male is penetrating the female. And wherever you look in the world where there's penetration, like Putin penetrating the Ukraine, it's the penetrator who is the dominant one. 
And we are built in such a way that the male has this projectile outside his body and the woman has a receptacle. And so that in and of itself is a dominating act. And it's made me wonder whether the only really egalitarian sexual intercourse activity is what the French call soixante neuf, where both people are licking and, and, and sucking on and, and pleasuring the other person's genitals because it's an equal opportunity. The man is, is licking and sucking on the, on, the, on the vagina and the clitoris, and the woman is doing that to the penis. So there's an equality. What do you think about that? What do you think about that theory? It's an interesting theory. Um, for me, though, I, I, as a, as a woman, you know, identify as a woman. I, you know, I, I definitely have access to both my my feminine energy and my own inner masculine energies. But as a, as a predominantly feminine woman, I have a deep desire to be penetrated. I, I love to surrender. But what is so important is the quality of consciousness of my partner. When they are, when they're in the sexual act of penetration, it's like the, what my system needs in order to feel safe is to really feel and register like, where's their heart? Where is their, where is their mind? Uh, where is their uh, vision for what this connection means? And I think that the, the biggest challenge that we've had with, you know, conventional sex, all the, you know, all the porn model, all the, you know, everything that we've learned from the church, the sex is bad, this, that it's all about disconnecting our sexual energy from the rest of us, right? And what conscious sexuality, what Tantra is about is about bringing those things into harmony, into alignment. So, so there's nothing wrong with our sexual energy as so long as it's connected to our ground, to the, to the root of who we are, as it's, you know, when it's connected to our power, when it's connected to our heart, our, our positive intentions, when it's connected to our voice, we could speak what's true. When it's connected to our visions for ourselves, for our partnerships, for the world. When we're in a state of alignment with that energy, then, then it's pure beauty and, and sharing and goodness in, you know, for me to receive uh, penetration from a man who's really who really adores me, and I feel his reverence, and I feel the I feel the the way that he accepts himself as a sexual being, and he accepts me, and it's it can be so powerful and intimate, and 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 actually like quite a generous act of of his giving in of that penetration with with that consciousness of love and of you know the harmony that comes with it. So I think it's all about our level of consciousness. It's all about what we bring to the act how we bring ourselves to it. The way you describe the recept your your receptivity to the penetration is quite beautiful. At the same time, it reminds me of one of my sexperts that I interviewed who says that so much of sexuality is about dominance and submission. And receptivity is more about submission, which makes me think somebody who invented this whole thing and set us up this way looks like they gave the males a leg up quite a bit because there's. I come back to that penetrating, even though in the beautiful way you put it, it still seems to me like it's more dominant and it puts the women in a weaker position, in a more submissive position. It's something to think about. Mm, let's let's uh, let's let's challenge that for Good. a minute. Will you uh, play with me? Please, on this? I love okay. it. So, so for me, sometimes I actually feel a little bit guilty because I think that I am, I get the better end of the bargain here because when I'm, when I'm being pleasured by my, by my partner, 
I get to relax and open into my pure receptivity. I get to, I get to float into this bliss realm. I get to disconnect from all the, all the holding, all the figuring it out, all the doing, all that. And I literally just get to like, ah, uh, like open and just receive. And it's, and, and that is such a gift to me for me to get to just be in my expansive bliss. Like, wow, what a gift. I mean, actually my partner is the one who's like doing more work, you know, doing more of the thrusting. That's of the right. Country. You know, it's like, it's like, he's the one who's got to be focused. You know, he, he brings his awareness. Right. So, so, and then we start to talk about the kind of cosmic dance of, of Shiva and Shakti, right. Awareness, energy, consciousness that penetrates space. Right. So I get to play out the, the, the Shakti feminine aspect of spaciousness, right of sort of dissolving, right? So here we are once again, dissolving into the all that is, right? Orgasm, uh, the moment of death, dissolving into all it is, the, the psychedelic experience of dissolving into the oneness. What a joy for me. And so I think it's the opposite. I think that the men are the ones who have to kind of stay a little focused and do a little bit more of the work. So, uh, <laughs> Well, what you're saying for you sounds wonderful on the personal yeah. level. On the political level, what you're saying sounds dangerous to me, because if the man is doing more of the thrusting, that's domination. And if he's doing more of the work, he's going to want something in return. I go out and earn the money or get the buffalo. You better sit by the fire and cook uh, meals and uh, make some kids. And that is a different kind of political interaction. So we've got an interesting thing here it's, on the personal level. It's great. So we're talking, <laughs> yeah. So we're talking different levels of consciousness. That's right. right? We're talking different levels. There's there's infinite ways that people can approach sexuality, right? And and how and so this is why I went into the field of sexuality in general is because I felt like wow, everybody's got stuff around sex, and the way the level of consciousness with which we approach it is everything. And so it, pretty much everybody that I have ever met has something about sex that they could evolve, that they could bring into even greater uh, awareness and harmony and connection. And so there's a lot of different ways to play this game. It just kind of depends yes. on what level are you playing yeah. on? What do you, are you in a space of like, oh, I'm going to dominate you and you're going to be, you know, it's like where it's kind of more combative or, you know, do you, do you like to play with, with BDSM energies? Is that, is that a, a gift to be able to offer your partner that opportunity to surrender? Um, do you want to play in more of the heart realms, the angelic, like, wow, we're coming into this communion together through lovemaking there's infinite levels to play on. And I think it really speaks to um, the fact that this is such a, a multifaceted uh, experience and, and, you know, sex is its own medicine journey. It's like, it reveals to you what you're ready to see. And, and there's infinite levels of the game, maybe. <laughs> well, I love talking to you about sex. It's one of my favorite topics, but I want to move on to another favorite topic because sure. after you went from being and a nurse in intensive care, and then hospice, and then you went and had the uh, ayahuasca and lived three months in Costa Rica, and came back working as a, uh, a, 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 a tantric teacher. You then moved to being a psychedelic guide, correct? Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I want to know something that you can share with us, not that we've already heard, but something that you think is interesting to share about your work as a psychedelic guide. And one of the things I'm going to ask you about first is what kind of adverse effects have you seen 
or possibly heard about, I'm less interested in the gossip, but some interest. What have you personally seen as adverse effects that you can share with us? The reason I'm asking this, Leslie, is I've been involved with what's called the drug wars for 50 years. They're really not drug wars. They're really wars against people. We know that, right? And they've been mostly wars against people of color and people called hippies. And they called them drug wars, but they weren't. And now we're having what's being referred to as a psychedelic renaissance. And there's a great deal of enthusiasm. I share that enthusiasm, of course, after waiting 50 years for our repressive government to allow research. And finally, we're getting some. So we have this great enthusiasm. But at the very same time, we have a responsibility to the public to let them know about the adverse effects. And there are adverse effects. It may only be a half of 1%. It may be 3%. I don't think we know yet. So that's what I would like. To, do you have any examples of that where people had some form of adverse effect ranging from a headache to nausea to one guy wrote me recently and said he took psilocybin and got depressed for a week? Mm-hmm. Well, what I'll say is that by and large, these medicines are very safe. When there's no medical contraindication or psychiatric diagnosis that would really prevent someone from utilizing them in a safe way. So doing really proper screening of the client is is of utmost importance to ensure safety, Um, making sure that they're not taking any medications that could have an interaction. For example, taking um, antidepressants, SSRIs, those kind of medications, and mixing them with MDMA, for example, could be a deadly combination. So that's very important for people to be aware of that the medications they're taking um, really can impact their ability to engage in these things in, in a safe way. So when you account for that, and then, you know, so some people have to go off of their medication temporarily to be able to engage in a psychedelic journey. Um, some people have some challenge, you know, if they've been on a medication for a long time, they have, they may have a little challenge tapering off of it for a few days or a week ahead of time. Um, that's best done under the supervision of their doctor, helping them understand the best way to taper it, you know, understanding the half-life of the medications, things like that. Um, so those, those kind of medical contraindications are really important to be aware of. Um, outside of that, I and mean, there's a lot of just interesting side effects that people can have. So people can have all sorts of physical reactions. They can feel hot, they can feel cold, they can feel sweaty, clammy, shaky. They can, their vision can be uh, shifted. They, um, they, you know, they might feel afraid. They might feel, you know, there's so many different kinds of side effects, um, but really most of those are safe. Um, the, the, I had one client who ended up feeling um, just fairly nauseous throughout her MDMA journey. She had a she was doing an MDMA journey, and she just she really didn't feel much of the positive benefits. She just had a you know an awful time of nausea for a few hours. It was an unfortunate experience, and she learned that hey, that medicine just isn't for her. So there's some people that just don't respond well to particular medicines. Are there are there um, checklists? that guides use for vetting that are sort of established yet? Documents that people fill out? Yeah. Well, so a lot of guides will have a 
prospective client fill out an intake form that gives them a lot of detailed information about, you know, their past use of different kinds of substances, um, current medications, things like that. And, you know, also if they have taken substances in the past, they can, they can share about the kind of dosages that they've used in the past, whether they're very sensitive to substances or not very sensitive. Um, so those, those can all be helpful, you know, pieces of information to determine the best course with someone. And what about uh, medical uh, information, such as possible cardiovascular issues? Um... Right, right. So besides medications, there are certain medical conditions, like like you said, heart conditions, where we're really, um, you know, it's it, we would leave the decision mostly to the client's uh, physician to determine if it's safe for them or not. In in many cases, um, the you know, because these medications, these the medicines, because they increase heart rate, increase blood pressure, things like that, you know, the person has to have a certain amount of cardiac fitness. So, um, but in some cases, it's if the client is able to pass a stress test, a normal stress test, that kind of thing, if they, if the physician feels comfortable with that, then that's, then that's fine. So I personally defer to the client's physician to make a call on whether they believe it's safe or not safe for them. Mm-hmm. Now, t- tell us about some of the combinations of psychedelics that guides are using uh, currently. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So um, in the way that I was trained, um, I mostly encourage clients to to start out with trying out an MDMA journey because it is so heart-centered, heart-opening. It's very safe, very very much about you know gaining a sense of appreciation for and acceptance of one's life experiences one's own you know history traumas it's really about staying within the the kind of human realm so so if you were to take MDMA Richard you know you would stay Richard throughout the entirety of the experience but you'd be able to reflect upon your life and your own experiences in a way that allows you to you know gain greater understanding and insight around it um, but you wouldn't necessarily be like talking to aliens or, you know, floating into other dimensions of reality, you know. So I think that for a lot of people, MDMA is a really great starting point. Um, and what what is, is a so starting, accessible. sorry to interrupt, what is a starting dose that uh, guides are using? It really depends on each person and their, their weight. It depends on their sensitivity. Um, it depends uh, on a lot of different factors. So I think there's, I can't say specifically like what would be a great a great starting dose, but, um, but, you know, perhaps anything from, you know, a hundred milligrams to 200 milligrams, uh, for a, for a journey dose. I took MDMA for the first time in 1983 in my therapist's office. Um, and it was legal then, uh, Dr. Robert Cantor ad- administered it to me and, um, I had a remarkable experience and it was two years later that I met Rick Doblin at Esalen, and uh, he told me he was going to get his PhD and then give MDMA to everybody in Congress, uh, which... Uh, That'd be great. I'm well, into it. We, we all thought it would be great. I think he gave it to some, <laughs> but not, uh, not to the whole Congress. Okay, so you yeah. start... And by the way, I've had MDMA um, well over 100 times. Uh, mm-hmm, since mm-hmm. nine, but that's a lot of years, uh, 17 yeah. and 20. Yeah. It's 40 years. Uh, yeah. so, um, wow. yeah. which comes to four times a year. Um, 
So MDMA would be a starting dose that you're saying that the guides that you're aware of uh, may be uh, advocating or using. And then what would be next? Um, and then also guiding guiding folks in psilocybin journeys is also very common. Um, so it's a little bit of a different experience, though. So so with psilocybin, you know, it's much more about kind of exploring what is what is beyond our normal sense of self. So if with MDMA, if the if the client is staying more kind of like within the realm of their human self, um, mushrooms can start to kind of blur the edge of the self and start to go into sort of what is beyond me. What you know, in what way am I actually interconnected with the universe and and something that's greater than me? So whereas with MDMA, a lot of times the the healing comes from from really observing and feeling and sensing the the deepest layers of the emotions the traumas you know the the relationships like really sensing and feeling what's there and letting it kind of unfold letting it come into a state of balance and peace and acceptance with mushrooms it can often be about like huh here's the me with my problems with my stresses but actually there's all this other stuff that also is connected to the me and so there's this much more expanded sense of self where and then when you look back at that problem that you're having it's it's seems like huh maybe not as much of a problem as you thought or huh you have a different perspective on it so so the the mode of action is really different in terms of like the energetic experience of you know sort of exploring the self versus exploring what's beyond the self there are two types of uh, of psychedelic therapeutic experiences that are well described in the literature. One is called psycholytic, and one's called psychedelic. Uh, psycholytic therapy, psychedelic therapy. In psycholytic, the doses are lower, as you know, and uh, and there's a communication during the experience between the uh, the client or patient and the uh, guide or therapist. In the psychedelic therapy the uh the dosages are much higher and there is very little uh interaction between the uh person taking the uh the medicine and the guide or therapist and the 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 patient who's experiencing the medicine is told to keep going within and look within very often with with uh, eye shades on uh and sometimes with earphones on um is is one or the other of those two, as far as you know, from the guides that you talk to and the word out there, uh, more predominant right now, or are they both being used? I, th- I feel like both formats are being used. And um, where I feel, you know, I think that there is a difference, too, in the, the which medicine is being used. Um, because, for example, uh, an MDMA session, um, the client stays a lot more verbal. They stay a lot more sort of... Um, in connection with the guide. There's much more of a sort of attachment safety thing going on with the guide. So there's a lot more room for conversation, for sort of processing through the the memories and the material that's surfacing. So I was trained in Hakomi somatic therapy. And what that what that kind of therapy is about is really about helping someone stay in contact uh, with the sensations that are arising and the emotions that are arising and help to help them to kind of follow that path and let it keep opening and unfurling. So in an MDMA journey, for example, someone's able to, to really like verbalize what's happening for them moment by moment. And as the guide, I'm able to help them sort of navigate and go a little deeper and, ooh, let's just stay right there. Just kind of feel into that piece. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's all about like helping them to unravel those pieces with a little bit more elegance. 
Um, where you get into a mushroom journey, for example, people are often a lot less verbal. They're a lot more uh, about going inside, about like really just communing with the medicine and following the journey where it wants to take them. As the guide, I'm there for you know anything that they come up against that that feels hard or scary, any place they get stuck, or anything that they want to just like celebrate or share that's arising. Oh, insights that they're having that they want to share. That's beautiful. But often there's a lot less verbal contact in a in a mushroom journey. Yeah, my question really wasn't clear enough because I, w- I wasn't really meaning to include MDMA because it's not, you know, classically a psychedelic, but asking more about the the uh, the psycholytic and the psychedelic with different dosages of psilocybin because in the lower mm-hmm. dose there would yeah. be in lower doses there'd be more opportunity for verbalization whereas right. you yeah, point out in the, in the mm-hmm. And the Definitely doses. a lower dose, lower dose mushroom journey can kind of look more like an MDMA journey where people are more kind of in that heart space connected to the emotions and speaking from the emotions. And um, there definitely can be more verbal contact in, in lower doses. So. In, in my research, it, it appears that um, around the country, the gu- guides are using uh, MDMA and psilocybin almost predominantly and uh, ketamine and uh, and LSD are being used much, much less. Uh, is that what you're uh, experiencing or hearing as well? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because there's such a, a wide array of legal ketamine clinics that are yes. available out there. And so I feel like, you know, there's folks who it feels better for them to go and participate in a um, sort of uh, legal, medically supervised kind of clinic setting, and that makes them feel safe to be able to let go into their experience. And so in those cases, a lot of those folks are using ketamine and, and you know, gaining a lot of benefit from it that way. Um, in more of the, the just sort of like community level uh, work around this, um, I, I do believe that there are a lot of folks that are working with clients with ketamine, uh, both in that kind of low dose, uh, you know, conversational way that lets, that lets a client kind of melt out of their normal cognitive space and actually drop a little deeper into the emotions. And so I think there is a lot of benefit for doing somatic therapy with, with ketamine. Um, but again, in, in higher doses with ketamine, the, the client often goes much more internally and is really not verbal and is really just kind of immersed in their experience. So I think that, I think that plenty of guides I know are, are utilizing ketamine in their private practice with clients, but, um, but folks also have the option to, to go to the clinic. So, yeah, I'm aware that some groundbreaking work with ketamine was done during the pandemic where uh, at the Sage Institute down in Berkeley, what, near where you are, mm-hmm. they uh, yeah, I know, I know the woman who founded it actually, <laughs> Genesee Herzberg. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, she, she's a gem. Oh, Genesee and and uh, and and uh, her guy Jason and I have a book coming out together called Integral Psychedelic Psychotherapy. Really? That's oh yeah, amazing. I love I love those two. They're two, I I love them. They're wonderful people. And and I and I met them at Wilbur Hot Springs. By the way, we uh-huh. talked about that earlier. Nice. And nice. I've referred a lot of people to them both. Um, we've talked about your work with human sexuality, and we've talked about your work uh, with psychedelics. We have a little time left. Talk to us about psychedelic sex. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> well, I do own the domain name psychedelicsexuality.org, and uh, I do feel like there's a, a great potential for um, for people to really dive in to learn more about about themselves, their body, um, their their you know just what sexuality can mean for them. Um, gosh, what to say? I mean, many of my, so my first experience of psychedelic sexuality was, was my first, was in my first ayahuasca experiences. And many of my ayahuasca journeys have been quite erotic in nature in, in one regard or another. It seems that my system has access to a certain kind of, uh, sort of ecstatic unwinding, a certain way that I can kind of go into my, into like waves of pleasure and allow even things that are painful to kind of come up and bubble up, you know, kind of within that space of pleasure and, and opening. So I think that there's a, a great potential for people to learn to connect to their ecstatic selves. And, and I think that, I think that psychedelics are one of the, are one of the gateways to that because they do take us out of the regular cognitive mind. They take us out of all the inhibitions and, and tap us into this, this beautiful, uh, intelligent energy in our bodies that just wants to unwind. It wants to like free us more and more. And, um, I, there's, there's much to be said. And I think that's one of those things that ultimately has to be discovered for oneself. I think that there's, there's sort of like, I can sort of point toward it. I can sort of share about, you know, what it's been like for me. Um, but truly there are just so many more layers to it all that, uh, so many more facets of our own body and energy that I think people, um, most people are not even, uh, remotely aware of. And so I just want to plant the seed that, that there's sort of endless dimensions of discovery in terms of, of erotic energy, uh, pleasure, emotion, you know, the body is just such a wonderland. And I sure. think there's a lot of, at the same time, the public, there. the public is going to be asking us as professionals, which psychedelics that we research experience and so on, that we would recommend for sexual behavior and which mm -hmm. ones we might not recommend. And it's up to us to discover it through research, through sharing information like this and so on. You know, for example, now methamphetamine is not a psychedelic by any means, but it's well known that, that, that methamphetamine has a deleterious effect on male sexuality. And we can say that mm -hmm. to people because it, mm -hmm. it interferes with the male plumbing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it can also yeah. interfere, it interferes with female orgasm. Um, and it could be that some of the psychedelics are going to be more favorable to sexual activity than others. And I guess that's something for us to keep researching and finding out. Yeah. Because, well, yeah, with, all, with so much suppression that's gone on for so long, that's going to be perhaps the last barrier because sex has been a barrier and psychedelics have been a barrier. And so psychedelic sex is going to be <laughs> the, gonna, the barrier. I'm going to get burned at the stake for sure if I come out with that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what I'll say yeah. is... What I'll say is that, uh, you know, so we're talking about the difference between, you know, having our own sort of recreational experiences with psychedelics and exploring sex and intimacy with, with our trusted partners 
we're talking about the difference between recreational experiences like that and then therapeutic and ceremonial experiences. So, So in the case of a therapeutic ceremonial experience, I don't believe that the actual, you know, genital contact and that kind of thing is really uh, appropriate in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm working with a client one-on-one, let's say, for example, I've worked with a number of women who have dealt with sexual trauma and in their MDMA journey, for example, they will want to get connected to their body. They'll feel those waves of pleasure moving through them and they'll feel oh, a sense of safety and like, oh, I can actually connect with my body in a new way. And in a number of those sessions, women have actually been like, is it okay if I touch myself, if I take my clothes off? And and it's, it's so innocent, right? And it's like, okay, sure, of course, like, you know, getting in tune with one's body and that, that level of like rediscovery of like, oh, wow, like reclaiming of my body, reclaiming of pleasure. That's a beautiful thing, right? And I think for couples doing work with MDMA together, it's really about returning to intimacy. It's really not so much about like, can the guy get an erection or can we get to orgasm? It's a lot more about the intimacy, the slowness, the the exploration, the how, how many layers of love there are. And, and I think it sets the stage for really fabulous lovemaking later on. Um, things I'm, la- like, I'm uh, laughing, Leslie. I'm laughing because we work in such different professions where you can say to a, a, a client that you're working with, sure, take your clothes off. If a, right. if, a, if a female says in my office, can I take my clothes off? My answer is, sure, when you get home and don't call me and tell me about it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I do feel very blessed to be... Um, you know, to be who I am, to have the the training and experience that I am and to be able to create safe spaces for people to explore what feels right for them. And, and I luckily don't have a therapy license to lose. So, uh, you know, it's a, I'm a coach, I'm working in my own way. I'm working based in the, the traditions that I've been trained in and, and it is delicate, right? I mean, even, even, you know, there's many uh, psychedelic communities out there where there has been sexual abuse, including yes. my own. And yes. and it is a it is a very important thing to be aware of. And, you know, and there is a lot of abuse going on. So I think that even even among the guide communities, there needs to be a lot more conversation about it. A lot Definitely. More That's real why honest I'm... assessment. And yeah, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm researching that topic. So we're going to take a little break now because uh, I'm going to do a commercial sort of. And while I'm doing that, what I want you to be thinking about is in the last few minutes, what might you want to add that perhaps you haven't said, if anything? And uh, I'm going to go on and remind everybody to come to our uh, website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, check out our um, archives, and subscribe, because that helps us in some way that I'm not sure how, but it does. Uh, so please do so. Uh, check out my books, Psychedelic Medicine and uh, and Psychedelic Wisdom, which came out a couple of months ago. And uh, look forward to Freeing Sexuality, which is coming out soon. And the other book that I'm co-editing, as you heard from Leslie, with uh, Genesee Herzberg, Dr. Genesee Herzberg and Dr. Jason Butler, called Integral Psychedelic Psychotherapy. Um, I think I've said it all. So now back to Leslie. <laughs> Did yeah, you think of anything you so you'd like to add to this wonderful interview you've given us? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I feel that I just want to say that, you know, this 
this work, this, this path of exploring my own body, my own energy, my emotions, and, and really like getting in there, getting in all the nooks and crannies, like bringing it all into the light. It takes a real, it takes a real, uh, warriorship for people to want to go down this kind of path. It's not about like, oh, am I going to take this pill and I'm going to feel better? No, it's about like, am I willing to see what's in there? Am I willing to be with it all? can i can i hold myself can i allow myself to to open up into all these realms that were potentially hidden before potentially scary can i can i allow myself to become whole through the exploration of my shadows and so it's a it's a beautiful holistic path and i think it's so important to um, have guides and mentors along the way that you really trust that you really feel like wow they have done some serious work in themselves, that they're really coming to it from a place of wisdom, from a place of balance, um, and understanding the power of these things. I think as as the, as, as the psychedelic revolution proceeds, we're going to see all kinds of stuff popping up. You know, everyone's a shaman, left and right, this person, that person, right? And you really got to look at like, you know, who who is this person? Do I really feel them in in the depth of themselves? Do I feel that they have what it takes to hold me? Um, and so I want people to, to really like proceed, proceed with caution in a way. It's like, it's like, you'll know what feels right for you. You'll know the safe space that's right for you. Um, the other thing I want to say is that, is that this work is so, you know, it's not just for people who have depression. It's not just for people who have trauma. Um, I deeply believe that everyone can benefit from, from therapeutic and ceremonial use of these medicines. And I believe that a lot of people have had beautiful recreational experiences, and that's one way of relating to these medicines. But but in the therapeutic or ceremonial context, it's a completely different way. It's, it's like entering into the, the sacred reality where everything comes into balance and alignment. And I feel that everybody on the planet can, can deeply benefit from that. Um, in my work right now, I'm choosing to focus my attention on working with leaders, entrepreneurs, change makers, people who really, who really do want to play a larger role in, in the shift that our world is going through. People who do want to become a more positive influence where they want to really align themselves so that they can be of greatest service to the planet. So um, just want to name that for me, it's like, okay, wow, how do we get these medicines and these tools into the hands of people who really are operating at a high level and can really make big shifts in the world that we live in? So that's where I'm personally focused right now. And so, um, yeah, it's like the, how do we have the biggest ripple out effect possible? And and how do we touch more and more people with, with the, the spirit that these medicines imbue us with? So. Thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And thank you all gentle listeners for tuning in today. I remind you that we broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock. And you can listen to the program with Leslie Grace and other programs on the archives at your convenience. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh.